really something. Can that be lowered? I'd like to see who I'm talking to. Is that possible? You don't like that? Maybe turn on the other lights. Somebody? <laughs> well, I can see the authority I have around here. It's uh, great for me to be here, as Andy said. I'm sure they're going to do that for me. I have great confidence. Uh, a few years ago, as Andy said, I was on staff at Grace Community Church and had the great privilege of uh, discipling a lot of the men that are now the leaders of the college ministry, the working disciples ministries, the young married ministries, etc. Had a great time there. A lot of fun times on the campus. Started the campus ministries at CSUN with about 10 people that basically none of the other Bible studies wanted. Uh, they sent them to us, and myself and a guy named Tom Harkis became good friends. We discipled some guys. We got a gal who came in who never really discipled anyone. We'd meet with her each week, teach her how to disciple the gal. She'd go meet with the gals, and then they would start growing. And we started like 10 or 12 students at the end of the semester, had 65 kids with about 35 brand-new Christians. It was an exciting ministry, and we had a great time there. I came up here for a while. I was involved with Russ Moore trying to get a campus ministry started at College of the Canyons and met some of the people that are even currently on your staff here. I remember when I was on staff at uh, Grace, we had a time where we were meeting and discussing the formulation of the Master's College. And they were not sure what it was going to be called, and John was still praying about whether or not he should be the president. But they asked the college department leaders if we could come up with a name. And at that time, you might remember it was called L.A. Bridal College. I mean, Bible College. And uh, <laughs> my old roommate came here, and he told me the motto here used to be, by spring you'll have a ring. Is that still true? I heard that guy up here in the game saying somebody's getting married, so I assume that's still a reality. But uh, we thought long and hard and prayed and came up with all these weird suggestions, and finally the Master's College was chosen. So it's for me a great privilege to come and to be a part of your time here. I really wish my wife could have been here today. Uh, she's at another meeting, administrative thing with a ministry to children, but uh, if you've uh, ever been to Grace Community Church, you've probably heard my wife Diane sing there, and uh, it's a great privilege to have such a special lady like that by my side in ministry. And maybe sometime, if they like what I say today, they'll invite me back, and I can come with her to share some things with you. But on my heart today, I wanted to tell you what's really on my heart. I had about... I don't know how many messages going through my mind. I just was asked to do this last week. Apparently, they couldn't afford the other guys, so they asked me. But um, I was just asked last week to come, and I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare. But I thought, you know, I just want to share what's on my heart. I want to talk to you guys about what I think is one of the missing elements of Christianity today. And it flows out of the Great Commission, commission passage in Matthew 28. If you have a Bible, you might want to look there. You might even have that passage memorized. But uh, I'm going to take a little different angle with it today because I want to share some things with you of a more personal nature to deal with this issue of making disciples. It seems to me, and maybe you're aware as you visit the different churches around, there are a lot of pastors and a lot of churches that talk about disciple making. There are very few churches and very few pastors doing it. That's alarming to me. Does that alarm you? If I read this passage correctly, this is the final thing that Jesus really commissioned his men to do. It's his methodology. It's his plan for the church. It is his desire for your growth and for mine. But as I observe churches across the country, I've recognized that more people are involved in entertainment than they are genuine instruction. And that concerns me. In fact, I was uh, involved in some churches in San Diego. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. But was down there as a missionary, really, to help plant a church and possibly some others. And I just got a call from one of the guys I discipled who's in a church down there now. And he told me that the, the thesis of their church is that they're committed to the Great Commission. They are committed to disciple-making ministries. It's in all of their materials. Everything they say is printed that way. 
but he went to their recent elder meeting and he asked all of the elders, he says, Which, any of you discipling anyone in the church? And none of them could say yes. And I just thought, what is going on? What is going on? This has been the thesis of my ministry as long as I've been a Christian. I was consumed with discipling ministries when I became a baby Christian and a guy poured his life into me. And I've never been the same since. Others have continued doing that on a personal level to impact me and to impart in me not a principle, not a practice, not a program, but a passion for ministry by disciple-making. And so as I thought of that, I thought no passage would be more appropriate than this passage you've probably heard spoken about many different ways. And I've done this passage before. I did it when I first started our church about a, not quite a year and a half ago in Wedland Hills. And I did a four-part series on this passage, and uh, maybe you might want to get the tapes from that. They're very cheap. What are they, like 15 or 20 bucks a piece, Andy? Something like that. No, I think we're a dollar a piece, or if, uh, if you want to duplicate them, there's four messages based on the four alls in this passage where he says, All authority, all the nations, all that I commanded, and lo, I am with you all the days. So I took those four and did a series on it, and it might be very good for you to get it if you have the chance. But I really wanted to focus on the last one, because the last one is a statement that Jesus made that is often taken out of context. I've heard this used at funerals. I've heard this used by the person's bedside in the hospital. Oh, Jesus is with you all the days. You know, And it's low. As long as you're not in an airplane, he's with you. But that's not what it's talking about. You can't rob it of its context. He is speaking about the context of disciple-making ministries. And as you do that, His presence is with you. I understand that you're in a series now on the attributes of God. Is that right? Brother Dave over here. Are you enjoying that? Is it exciting for you to study about this God that you know and you serve? Have you ever heard anyone talk much about His presence and the difference that that makes? I was reminded of a story about a lady who was a Christian and she'd always been kind of a, a goody two-shoes. Is this a good position? Thank you. She'd always been a real... She want to take my picture. I, that makes me feel special. She uh, always was really good, but she decided this one year she was going to take a vacation and get away from all of her Christian friends. She thought, well, the one place I'd go is Las Vegas. So she goes to Las Vegas, takes a little bit of money with her, figures I'll try gambling a little bit. Goes down, gets some silver dollars, goes up to the slot machine. Sure enough, first thing. Pulls it back. Ding, ding, ding. The things line up $1,500 out of the slot machine. This is a true story. She's pretty excited, right? I don't know. Maybe that's what your allowance is each week. I'm not sure. But that's a lot of money to me. And she's excited about this, and she figures, I don't want to lose it. I don't want anybody to steal it. She cashes it in, and she says, i got to get to my room. I'm going to hide out for the next couple of days, and no one's going to get this money from me. So she decides after she gets the money, she's going to sneak around to the back service elevator for fear of being mugged, right? So she goes back and she hits the service elevator button and she's waiting and looking around. Nobody better get me. And the door opens and she steps in to see this tall black man with dark sunglasses and two Doberman pinchers. And she goes, oh no. So she, what can I do now? She gets on and she's kind of hiding the money and the door closes. She turns around and she hears this man in a very mean voice say, get down on the floor. She says, okay. You know? And she gets down on the floor, and next thing, she hears him say, no, lady, the dogs. <laughs> what would you have done? 
She gets up, she goes to her room, relieved. The next morning she checks out. She says, I've had enough of this place. I'm going home. She goes to the cashier. She starts to pay. And the cashier says, your room's already paid for. She says, my room can't be paid for. I haven't been down here yet. He goes, yeah, a tall black man came here, paid for it, and left this note for you. She opens the letter, and the note says this, quote, Dear lady, thank you for the funniest experience of my life. <laughs> Signed, Lionel Richie. Surprise! Right? I say that to emphasize a point to you. She was in the presence of a very important person, wasn't she? If she would have known who that was, she might have acted differently. But she was not aware of this man with whom she was talking. Have you ever thought about God being in your presence that way? Have you ever thought about what difference it might make that He's with you everywhere you go? I think a lot of people give little credence to that. The presence of God is not often talked about. We talk about fearing Him as if He's some distant being. But He's right here, isn't He? You say amen to that? A couple of you believe it. The rest of you, you believe He's here right now? What difference does it make? What difference does it make in the way you live? What difference does it make to a watching world? that Christ is here in your very presence. Jesus stated it very emphatically in Matthew 28. After he talked about all authority, I really thought about doing that message this morning. After all, you are at the Master's College. Authority should be an issue with you. He said all authority of Christ is there. He's the Master. He said, make disciples of all the nations. That was his mandate and his mission. He said the process will be multiplying, working with people, teaching them all I've commanded you, that they live an obedient life. And in the process, he says a very interesting word, low. The word literally means remember this, take notes, pay close attention, check it out. I am with you every single day, day in and day out, till the end of the age. What a promise. You ever felt alone? You ever felt alone in a crowd? You ever wondered if someone was there to help? Well, in the process of making disciples, that can often happen. I've worked with different guys, loved them, gave my life to them, gave them financial help, invited them into my home, sometimes to have them turn their back on me. Has that ever happened to you? It hurts, doesn't it? Maybe you have a roommate here who isn't even a Christian. You know it and they know it. It hurts. And sometimes you feel alone trying to help. But Jesus comes along and says, I've got all authority. I've got the authority to carry out this plan that God has given me, and you're my chosen vessel. And I'm going to be with you to promise you and guarantee you it's going to happen. You know what? If Jesus commissioned us to do something and He has all authority, what's the likelihood it's going to work? Pretty good chance? I think it's guaranteed. When I was in college, Southern Oregon State College, this cord's a little long. I'm going to have to do something with this. Wrap it around here or something. I was in the college, and uh, I was really, as Andy said, I like to share Christ with people. It's really a joy to me. I just have so much fun doing that. I had fun. I, I shared Christ with Phil Collins. Had a great talk with him. The guy was very, very, very close to becoming a Christian. Had an interesting talk with Madonna. 
shared the Lord with her. She said that she was a good Catholic. I said, that's interesting. But we had a good talk, and she was very open. She wanted to really know what difference Christ had made in my life. My good friend Tom Harkis drove limousines with me. He shared with Ozzy Osbourne's band as they were in the back trying to smoke some marijuana. He said, you can't do that in the car. They were shocked. What do you mean? So then they called him a goody two-shoes and stuff, and he said, that's not right. He says, I used to be just like you guys. Oh, sure, sure. So he had the chance to share his testimony. They had the music all blaring. It's louder than you can imagine in the car. As soon as he started talking about his relationship with Christ, they turned it off, and all of them sat and listened carefully to what he had to say. Why? Because Christ was there. But I remember one time on the college campus in Southern Oregon, you know, where God lives, and I was on the campus, and there was this atheist there, and he was the, the head of the atheist core on the campus, and he knew that I was one of those radicals. I was what, I don't know what you call them here, the BMOC. I was a big man on campus. I did the decathlon in college and competed nationally and almost went to the Olympics and stuff. So a lot of the students knew me, and I was a, you know, a big guy, so what? But I always thought, hey, that's a platform to share Christ. So I was constantly sharing with people, and this atheist about had it with me. Some of his friends became Christians, and he didn't like it. So he wanted to buy me lunch, and I said, if it's free, it's for me. So we sat down and started to eat, and he started asking me questions. Well, what is this faith you've got, and why do you believe in God? I started telling him, and he asked me a very penetrating question. I want to ask this of you. He said, if you really have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and he really is God, what real difference has he made in your life? And I was kind of stunned there for a minute. Because at that point in my life, I had more theological knowledge than I had relationship with God. And sure, I could tell people about God, and I could challenge them to know Him, but I really didn't know Him that well. I knew a lot of information. I could quote the verses, but I was really kind of stumped. And I kind of hemmed and hawed and gave him a few nice little homilies and statements that I'd heard somewhere. And I went home and prayed. So, Lord, what difference have you made in my life? And God humbled me in that instance by an atheist. What difference has Christ made? What difference does it make that he's here with us this morning? What difference will it make when you graduate from here, when you're married? I've been married six years now with my fourth child on the way. I like to do everything fast. What difference will it make when you've got kids? What difference will it make when you're in your ministry? What difference does the presence of Christ make? And so rather than giving necessarily a bunch of nice pointed outlines, I just wanted to share four things that are real personal with me. Is that fair this morning? You let me do that? Four very personal things about the presence of Christ. First of all, I want to talk about the all-supplying presence of Christ. Remember in Exodus chapter 3? Moses walking along up the hill and he sees this strange sight. There's a burning bush that isn't being consumed. And God spoke to him. What did God say his name was? This is not a trick question. What? I am. Thank you. He said, I am that I am. Very fascinating word. The Jehovah's Witnesses have perverted. It's not Jehovah. It's Yahweh. Best we can figure out. We don't really know how to say it. But those four letters of the I am that I am, I think it means a lot of different things. I think it means he's eternal. But I think it also means, as he was talking to Moses... Moses, I'm the eternal God. I am independent of all other sources of life. And I will be to you whatever you need me to be. I really think that's part of what he was saying. Psalm 23, the famous psalm you all know so well. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I what? Shall not want. I used to, I used to think when I was a kid that that meant I don't want him. The Lord's my shepherd and I don't want him. Hello, what a weird verse in the Bible. Is that what that means? No. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall have no needs. I will want nothing. He will meet every need that I have. Of course, it's needs, not greeds. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply what? All your needs according to what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because Christ is with you as a sympathetic high priest that He knows every need you have? He knows your financial needs, your emotional needs, and when the exam comes up later, your intellectual needs. Do you think He knows all of that? Absolutely. And He is there to meet your needs. I had the privilege of meeting some Chinese guys a few years ago that are consumed with disciple making. And they came to America to talk to some Americans to challenge them to get back on track. And I loved it as they were sharing. And they're all doctors and lawyers and hospital administrators and business people who are in a very competitive environment. And they were asked about how they use their time. And they said, basically, we work the hours that we're supposed to work. We're committed. We work hard. And when the job's over, we go home and we start our discipling ministries. I said, well, how do you compete with the guys that are so busy doing extra work, more research, trying to get a better reputation to make more money? How do you compete with those guys when you only work the eight hours? He says, well, we look at life this way. We're in a poker game. Can I use that word here? Is that all right? We're in a poker game. Las Vegas poker. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Never ask me that. We're in a poker game. And because we work shorter hours, we only get dealt four cards instead of five. But God's the dealer. God's the dealer. He supplies. He meets my need. Exactly what my need is. It's a very personal thing for me. I was on staff at Grace Community Church. It was a part-time staff. You know how that works. You get about one-tenth of normal pay and you work twice the number of hours. Well, I was on staff there and my wife got pregnant had to quit her job. We were married two whole months when she got pregnant. It was like, surprise! And so she quits her job and I get this job driving limousines. And I was doing that for a while. And this friend of mine challenged me to come down to San Diego. Could someone get me a glass of water? My throat's killing me. It's got to be killing you too. My friend challenged me to come to San Diego, raise support as a missionary and go down there and help him plant a church. Well, I thought about that and was praying about that. We talked to the elders at Grace about that. We prayed and talked to some friends and uh, really felt convinced that that was what God wanted us to do. Well, as I'm driving the limousines, this guy comes along who's a filthy rich millionaire. And I'm driving him for two weeks every day, taking him around town, and he's hiring these people. He's got a business that brings in $50 million a year. And he says to me, he says, Paul, he says, I like you. I can see that you're a committed Christian. I shared my faith with him. His wife was a Christian. He wasn't. You're a committed Christian, Paul. I can see that. And I can trust you. It seems like you've got a few brains in your head. I think I could train you to be an executive in my, country, my company. I said, well, that's very fascinating. I appreciate that. And... Uh, I would pray about that. And he says, well, let me tell you about the job. You would be working underneath a guy for a couple of years till you got the position that you would ultimately have. You would oversee a whole office like L.A. or something like that. And at that point, you would probably make between three and $400,000 a year, have your own house, car, membership in the local exclusive clubs, maybe even buy a yacht or something for the harbor. He was on and on painting this picture for me. And I said, well, I thank you very much. I'll pray about that. But I told him, I said, I think the Lord's calling me to raise monthly support so I'll never know if I'm going to have as much money as I need each month and I'm going to go down to San Diego and help start a church. 
goes, well, you think it over and let me know. Talked it over with my wife. She was kind of excited about the idea, actually. <laughs> uh, she wasn't real thrilled about raising support, but she was kind of excited about making that kind of money and, you know, all, we could support ministry around the world and stuff. So we prayed about it. And as Christ spoke to me and to her and we prayed about it, we felt convinced, no, He wants us to go and trust Him to meet our needs, to help start a church in San Diego. So we did. It was fascinating because each month we were short. Any of you ever experienced that? Got more month than any of your money? Well, that happened for us. We raised the support. We never asked anybody for money. This is fascinating. We just started praying. My wife felt weird about raising support. We started praying. Said, Lord, if you want us to go, put it on the hearts of people to support us. We didn't even tell anybody. We just figured this would be a real sign, right? Within two weeks, we got calls from three different people who said, I hear that you've been considering going to a church in San Diego to help start one. Now, they may not be able to help you financially. If you should happen to need financial help, we'd be willing to support you X amount of dollars each month. Between the three people, they had committed $750 a month and we hadn't asked a soul. My wife started thinking, maybe God's in this. We prayed some more. We sent out a generic letter. We never met with anyone face-to-face. I never asked anybody, will you support me? People started calling and writing and saying, we'll support you. The money came in. I was ordained at Grace. I went down there. The first month I was down there, a $200 a month supporter dropped off. No problem, right? Oh, bless you. What is in that? That's water. Oh, my. This looks like the stuff they did in the Old Testament to see if the lady was lying. That's really something. Thank you, brother. Uh, We started believing God for the money. We decided, God, you provided this this far. We could have written a letter to our supporters and said, Hey, we lost 200 a month, right? Is that fair? My wife, all of a sudden, her whole understanding of faith has changed. She says, We don't want to do that. We want to pray and trust God. So we prayed. A week later, I get a note in the mail from a friend with a check for $200. He says, I was just thinking about you and praying for you, and the Lord put it on my heart to send you this money. Well, a month later, another supporter dropped off, so now we're short $500 a month. And for the remainder of our three and a half years down there, we were always at least five to $700 a month short of what we needed. And every single month, God provided. Remember one time, my wife came to me. She says, honey, i got to go grocery shopping. I said, well, go. Don't be upset about it. Let's go. She said, you don't understand. We've got $21 in the bank. I said, great. Go buy the groceries. You don't understand. I'm talking grocery shopping. You know, like 100-something. I said, go do it. God will provide. He's provided till now, hasn't he? She goes grocery shopping. She comes back. She gets the mail. She walks in the house, opens a card. A lady who we sent our letters out to said, I was very challenged by your last letter. And the Lord put it on my heart to send you some money. She sent us $1,000 right at that time. I thought, well, praise God, we got extra. Well, then I decided to check the way my wife was balancing the checkbook. And actually, instead of having $21, we were 400 in the hole and didn't know it. But God did. And I want to tell you something. (laughs) God knew. He knew our need. He met our need. He always did. And you know what? If that atheist asked me that again now, what difference does the presence of Christ make in you? I would say, you know what? Christ knows my needs. And He meets them. 
And I could tell him by experience, story after story after story, where he met my need. He'll do the same for you. You know, you can't outgive God. In the course of our ministry down there, we often were so challenged by God's graciousness to us that we felt, well, Lord, if someone has a need, we ought to give to them too. And so whenever we were made aware of a need, we would pray about it. And I would pray and my wife would pray. And we'd say, God, how much would you have us to give? And she would come up with a number, I'd come up with a number. 90% of the time, it was the same number. In the 10% of the time it wasn't, we would give the higher of the two. Because we knew that God was challenging us to walk by faith. And we constantly gave money away that we didn't have. And He constantly replenished the supply. It was not that I expected Him to. I wasn't asking Him to. I was willing to sacrifice my lifestyle. Someone had a need, we'd give them $200. We went grocery shopping one time. This, this family had a need. They had no food in their house. Someone told us about it. We took all the groceries we just bought, gave it to them. I was willing to go without. You understand? We were not saying, God, you must give me this money because I tithe regularly. We're saying, God, you know our needs. You put it on our heart to give. We'll give because we can't outgive you. The difference of the presence of Christ is He knows your needs and He'll meet them. There's another thing. Not the all-supplying presence only, but the all-sustaining presence of Christ. The strength that He can give. Hebrews 2.18 says, Christ comes to our aid when we are tempted. Philippians 4.13 says, We can be content in any circumstances. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's in a context of contentment. In Matthew 14, remember what Peter did? He walked on what? Thank you! He walked on water. Did he do that of his own power? He did it because Christ was there. In Acts 18.9, Jesus tells Paul, you're protected by me, I'm with you in the city. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 through 8, God told the Israelites His presence would be with them and would go before them into the land so that they could indeed take it over. 1 Corinthians 10.13, have you ever struggled with temptation? No? Well, that's, that's good. I'm excited. God says that He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what? You are able. But with the temptation will provide what? A way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. You know what that way of escape is? It's His presence. It's His leading. It's the Holy Spirit guiding you and directing you and you march to His drumbeat as you sang the song earlier. He'll lead you out. His presence will sustain you. It'll strengthen you. It will give you the energy you need to accomplish His will. I remember a while ago being told about a man Billy Kim. You ever heard Billy Kim as he's spoken here? Billy Kim's a godly man. He's a pastor of a church in Korea. He told the story one time when the communists were in power there and they came to the church and they marched into the church with their machine guns and they told everyone to sit down. And then they took a picture of Jesus off the wall and laid it on the floor. And they said, we want each of you to line up single file, come up here, spit on this picture, and renounce your faith in Christ. And they all lined up. They said, if you don't do it, we're going to kill you. And so the first guy lined up there, and he was a deacon in the church, a leader in the church, and he looked at the picture, and he looked at the machine gun, he looked at the people, and he, he walked over there, and he spit on the picture and stepped to the side. Next person did the same thing. Next person did the same thing. 
Finally, the next person was a 16-year-old girl, the only Christian in her family, a brand new Christian, who knew that Christ meant everything to her. And she walked up and she looked at the spit on the picture. And she looked at the men, the leaders of her church that had denounced Christ. And she looked at the men with the machine guns. And she got on her knees and she took her skirt and she wiped the spit off. Picked up the picture and said, I will never denounce Christ. Shoot me. And the soldiers looked at her and said, Everybody out of here except these men who denounced Christ. And as they all walked out, they heard the machine gun fire. Right after they heard him say, You denounce Christ, you'll denounce communism. You are not fit to live. And the church was saved because of one girl who appropriated the presence and the strength of Christ. Is the saying? I'm with you always. I will sustain you. Thirdly, the all-supplying presence, the all-sustaining or strengthening presence, the all-saving presence of Christ. The reason I was so thrilled to share my faith in the limousines, besides the fact that I had the door lock and they couldn't get out, and I had a very you know, appropriate audience, if I wanted to, I could drive real fast and ask the question, if you were to die today... <laughs> You know, there was a lot of creative things you could do going on Mulholland with the cliffs and stuff. If you were to die today, it's a lot of fun. But the reason I take such joy in sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with people is because He's with me. And I believe that as He saved me, He can save others. Do you believe that? Do you still believe that the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Do you believe that God can take that silly message that the world says is foolish and draw people out of sin into eternal life? I believe He can. I believe in Acts 16.31 when Paul was in a rotten place, when he could have been down in the dumps, when he could have been discouraged, he sang praises to God believing that even there the presence of Christ could draw people to salvation. And I remember a few years ago I met a man from Nepal his name's Prem Pradham. If you ever get the chance to have him come to your school, you should have him come. He is the closest thing to the Apostle Paul I've ever met in my life. Prem was a man who was a military guy. Nepal doesn't have a military, or actually India doesn't have a military. He was hired by the Indians to be in their military and he was growing in that. He had a good salary. He was rising in the ranks. And a missionary traveled through and shared Christ with him and brought him to Christ and said, Prem, if you're going to be a real Christian, you have to suffer. Because if you make a stand for Christ, you will suffer. Well, he was on good footing then. They teach that here, don't they? He was in a good place to start. And so Prim decided to go for it. And he went back to Nepal to be a missionary to his own people. The problem was in Nepal, it was against the law to try to convert anybody. If you converted someone to Christ, the person who was converted would go to jail for a year. If you converted someone to Christ, you went to jail for six years. Prim decided, I'm going to do it anyway. For a couple of years, he traveled and he was telling everyone about Christ and nobody was coming to Christ and he couldn't understand what was wrong. And he started praying one day, God, what is wrong? And he says, the Lord was speaking to him saying, Prim, you're not going to lead anybody to Christ. You can't do it. You've got to get out of the way, Prim, and trust in me. You let me draw them to the Savior. This is not for your glory, it's for mine. And so Prim repented of his pride. 
and began sharing the gospel with people. And that very next day, 12 people came to Christ. Well, because these 12 people came to Christ, where'd they go? To jail. So the 12 of them go to jail and Prim goes with them. And Prim's in the jail. And he says, this isn't so bad, we'll be here for a year. Well, you have to understand the jail's there. It's one little room with one little tiny window in it and they stuffed them all in there. They give him every day a little bit of water, probably look like this, and a bowl of rice. They don't give him anything to cook with, no matches, no wood, no anything. They don't give him clothing. Their family has to bring that stuff to them. Well, he's in there for the year and he had a great time. He said, first he thought, this is a terrible guy, but I'll endure it. I got my brothers and sisters. For a year, they studied the Bible. They prayed. They sang songs. They grew in the Lord. At the end of the year, the 12 left and he was there alone. He says, God, I'll die. I can't be in here alone. God spoke to him and says, yes, you can, Prim, and I have a plan for you. I want you to witness to people in here. He says, in the prison? That's right, Prim. So he started sharing his faith in the prison. He started leading prisoners to Christ. Well, the authorities said, you can't do that. You can't share Christ outside of the prison. You're not supposed to share Him inside of the prison. We've got a special place for you. At the prison, they had a little hole in the ground. And it was this little tiny thing with one entrance. It was about six feet wide, about 10 or 12 feet long, and four feet high. And when people died in the prison from lack of food, they threw their dead bodies in there. No windows. Just one little slot in the door. They threw Prem in there with his hands chained behind his back and his feet chained together and he sat in there with the smell of dead bodies. You ever smell dead bodies? It's a pretty sick thing. As he sat in there in the stench for six months, he cried out to God, God, I can't live! I can't make it in here! And God spoke to him one day and says, Prem, I'm, I'm all you need. And I have a plan for you, Prem. You just praise me and trust me. And all of a sudden, his heart was filled with the peace of Christ, and he started singing praises to God. And as he sang, and he sang, and he sang, the guard comes to the door, and he says, Who are you talking to in there? And he shines a flashlight in there, and he says, I'm talking to Jesus. And he says, Where is he? He says, He's here, but you can't see him. He says, Who is this Jesus? And he shared the gospel with the guard. He led the guard to Christ. And the next day, another guard, and he led him to Christ. And he led all the guards to Christ. And they said, Prem, you can't do that. You can't share outside. You can't share inside. You can't share where the dead bodies are. You're, you're out of here. So they took him to a place up in the north in the mountains, and they put their prisoners that were the most vile people on earth there, and they would leave him there to die. They would put him in the stocks out in this room that was four walls with no roof. Now, Nepal is the country where Mount Everest is. You get the picture? Snow. And the snow would fall and they would freeze to death out there. While he was inside the place with the dead bodies, he had all these lice and critters and crud and larvae and stuff crawling all over his body. Ate away all of his clothing. He had big gaping holes and sores and stuff all over his body with stuff just dripping off and the pus. You get the picture? So they put him out in the snow. And as he's out there in the snow where he's supposed to die, God does an interesting thing. Through the cold weather, he starts to heal his body. And all the sores are going away and he's getting healthier and they can't figure it out. So the leaders of this jail go and they say, Prem, why are you here? Are you a mass murderer? He says, no, I told people about Jesus. They said, you shouldn't be out here for that. Bring him inside. So they bring him inside and he leads 125 people to Christ. They said, you can't do that there. The authorities found out. They said, you must be insane. They sent him to an insane asylum. And he's in the insane asylum with these people. 
And when they get their rice, they go like this with it, you know, for fear the next guy is going to get it. And one day he says he walked away and he came back and this guy's eating his rice and he started to say something. The guy looked at him with drool hanging out of his mouth. He says, okay, it's your rice. It's fine. And he says, God, I can't make it in here. I'm going to die. And the Lord spoke to him. He says, Prem, these people in here have got a problem. They don't know Jesus. They're not insane. They need to have their sins forgiven. And so he began preaching Christ to these insane people in the insane asylum. And he began leading them to the Lord, and the Lord changed their lives. And they went to the authorities and they said, I'm not crazy anymore. And the authorities let him go. And as they went out, they proclaimed Christ. And finally, the authorities, this is five years after he was arrested, said, you did it outside the prison, you did it in the prison. You did it by the dead bodies, you did it in the snow. You did it in that place, you did it in the insane asylum. We can't do anything with you, let him go. The most powerful part of the whole story is when he got out, what was his wife doing this whole time? What would you do, ladies, if that was happening to your husband? Would you become bitter toward God? Would you be upset? She figured, there's only one ministry I can have. We have a large house. And in Nepal at the time, it was illegal to convert someone to Christ, but if you adopted them into your family, they could adopt your belief system without any reprisal. So she'd adopted 12 kids and had them in her house and was raising children to fear and know Jesus Christ. And Prem got out, and he was so excited about it, they got a bigger and bigger and bigger property, and when he came to America, they had 300 children at their house. And they were trusting God to supply all of their needs to feed these kids that they could know Christ. Does Jesus Christ save people today? I say He does. And I say if Christ is with you, and you go present the gospel, then you can by faith believe that He can and will indeed draw people to the Savior. But one final thing, and maybe this is personal with you. Not only does the supplying presence, the all-sustaining, strengthening presence, the all-saving presence, but the all-sanctifying presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I struggle with sin. It's a heartache. I hate it when I have some things go on in my life over and over. And I came to a realization a few years ago as I was studying in the book of Romans and other passages. God has made no provision for me to live the Christian life. He has made no provision for you to live the Christian life. He has made provision for the Lord Jesus Christ to live that life through you. And I came to that realization I've never been the same. I came to understand that the reason Jesus Christ came to indwell my life was to flow through it. He came to change me from the inside out. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it, complete it, take it out to the end, to the maturity. He's going to do that until the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident that he will do that. I read Philippians 2, 12. It says, work out your salvation. Literally means carry on to the finish your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For God is at work in you, both to desire and to effectually carry out that desire for his good pleasure. Is God working in you that way? God can change anything in your life. I guarantee it. I've worked many years with collegians. I know that some of you here struggle with pornography. I know that every one of you in you here struggles with some form of lust. I know that you have struggles with temptation toward greed and idolatry and pride, sarcasm, wrong use of your tongue. Am I right? Am I right? 
What a privilege, what a blessing, what a wonderful thing to know that Jesus Christ is with me. And He has all authority. And He can change my life. He has given me victory over many things as I surrender to Him. And in this process, as I started, of making disciples, you'll have many a heartache, many a pain, over your own sin and over the sin of those that God has committed to your care. But the bottom line is, they are not your disciples. They're His. And He is the one doing the work. And He's using you as a vessel. And He's using them to strengthen you and you to strengthen them. But He is the one that will call them to a life of maturity. Do you believe that? I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Master. He's my God. I have no right to do anything that goes against His will. The most contradictory statement in the entire universe is, No, Lord. Have you ever said that? He can't be Lord and have you say no. And the Lord of glory has commissioned us to make disciples. And He says, As you do it, I'll be with you in the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Revelation 1 and in Revelation 5, is no longer a humble carpenter. He's the exalted God of glory. He's with you. He's with you. And He's calling you not to give lip service to His mandates, but to do it effectually now. You say, Paul, I can't do it while I'm in college. You sure can you sure can. You can disciple people now. You can pour your life into people now because if you don't do it now, I dare say you may not do it later. And I challenge you with this because I am deeply concerned about the churches in this area and in the San Fernando Valley and around the world. God is mobilizing you as a mighty army to go out and to represent Him in His power with His presence to make disciples of all the nations. And when that's accomplished, we will know the task is done. And you can influence pastors and church leaders and Sunday school teachers and women's ministries and men's ministries in the churches you're in by committing yourself to the God who's present with you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that much more so than Lionel Richie in an elevator we have the great privilege of having you present with us at all times. Lord, forgive us for the times we don't recognize that. And we walk in our own power and we're fearful and we're anxious because we don't realize who is with us. Lord, I pray for each student here that you will not place in their heart a desire for a program. You will not give them simple steps of a practice, but you'll give them a passion first and foremost for you. They would truly know you as Master and Lord. They would honor you with their lives by being obedient to this heavenly call to every person who knows you to make disciples. God, may we have the joy of seeing you work mightily in us and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.